You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas. I'm the author of the book Champion of the World, available for pre-order at Amazon.com. And I'm a lead MMA writer for Bleacher Report. And joining me, as always, your friend and mine from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, we're living in a whole new world. Feels like it. You feel different? Yeah. Woke up this morning, just felt like like the world had been turned upside down. You look different. You look a lot less rowdy. Really? Than before you look like you're living in a in a in a uh, a less rowdy world as like, I suppose the rest of us are. I guess now that you say that, I do feel thirty percent less rowdy. Ben, we've, there's good news and bad news, I guess you could say, uh, about this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, which is the first episode of the post Ronda Rousey era at 135 pounds in the UFC bantamweight division. Do you think we should give the people the good news first? Or the bad news. I say bad news first. Just kind of person I just, am. Just just get it out of the way. Yeah, like a band-aid. clear the air, so to there speak. There you go. The bad news, Ben, is that it seems like we're going to have to postpone the co-main event podcast book club. Yeah, that's inevitable. Uh because neither of us have yet finished the book. It's a long book. It is a long ass book. I have personally experienced an unexpected change in my uh, in my working life over the next couple months. And, and I just and, had a uh, Krispy Kreme open near my house, oh, so that so takes up a lot of my day. You are equally as screwed, yeah. Ben. You may die of a heart attack before ever reading this book. Hopefully. Uh, I feel bad because I bragged about how I was going to read it on Twitter, sent out a picture of the title page, and now here I am backtracking from hey, that. Yo, I'm still going to read it. Yes. I'm well, still going to read this shit. Everyone is still going to read it. And we had not received any uh, reaction from the book to our co-main event podcast email, so I assume that that people are generally going to be cool with this postponement, although I assume they will act like they're not, because that's what our audience typically does. Let's be honest, though. We could all use a little more time to work through this book. It's very long. There's a lot going on in there. I'm sure that there are plenty of listeners right now who are thinking, you know, over the Thanksgiving break, maybe the Christmas holiday, that's a good time for me to snuggle up with this book and really get some stuff done. Until then, how about this? Until we start getting responses pouring in about this book, we won't we won't sweat it. So you you say put it on the people. Yes. Put the onus on them to That's right. to pressure us to reschedule. Yes. In the meantime, we will work on reading this very long book. I like that. The book, by the way, in case you haven't heard, is To Light Us, To Guard Us by UFC Light Heavyweight Sean O'Connell. And if you haven't yet bought it or started it, as I think we have communicated effectively so far. It is not too late. Yeah, you, you can you can catch up with Chad get, today. Get rolling. This is your second chance. Uh, good news, though. Yes, we're going five rounds today, baby. Woo! Championship time. How's your cardio? You feel ready to do this? Twenty-five hard minutes. Well, I you guess know, for us, it's going to be much longer than I, that. But I was I was out there in the alley behind your house hitting a tire with a sledgehammer until the owner of the tire came out and yelled at me. <laughs> so I feel pretty good. Yeah, he was probably lucky he didn't catch you rolling it down the alley trying to take it back to your place. Well, hey. Throw that tire on your dune buggy. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the thing I like about your neighborhood is uh, if, if it's not, you know, if the giant tire isn't laying outside behind you, then 
there's probably somebody's boat just laying on the concrete. Yeah, I, I live in the kind of neighborhood where it's not that unusual to see a guy driving his dune buggy around. That was actually not a joke. <laughs> I also live in the kind of neighborhood where a guy in full camouflage can come bang on your back door thinking that you're Mike, the guy who said was going to sell him some wooden beams. Huh. That happened the other day. Is that a euphemism? Here I am working wooden from beams. home. Guys looking for wooden beams. I don't know. I didn't ask. Just I told him I wasn't Mike. I didn't mention this to you, but a couple weeks ago when leaving your house, I noticed a guy driving on the street with a forklift. On the street. I would describe... He's probably going to move those wooden beams. I would describe That's probably the Mike. look on the man's face as placidly indifferent. Well, Ben, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Fulton & Rourke is a men's grooming grooming company that creates products built for the way men operate. Last week, we told you all about the new refillable containers for their manly and great-smelling cologne, giving you the chance to, dis- to tame your disgusting personal odor and do something for the environment at the same time. So what are you waiting for? Run over there and grab some of that stuff right away. The people in your life and the dude at the next table at lunch will thank you for it. Jed, while you're at it, why don't you trim your hipster beard and shave your stupid face with some Fulton and Rourke Ultra Slick Low Foam Shave Cream. Then jump in the shower, pretty yourself up with their bar soap. No gadgetry required, just good soap. Made with Moroccan red clay and designed to exfoliate, while the combination of eucalyptus, black spruce, and sage nourishes your skin right now fulton and rourke are offering special savings for cme listeners you can go to the website fulton and that's r-o-a-r-k and enter the promo code cme for 15 percent off your total purchase ben five rounds this week in the co-main event podcast five grueling rounds i'd say this week deserves no less In round number one, all hail Holly Holm, the UFC's undefeated and unbeatable women's bantamweight champion who will never get old and never disappoint you by showing a moment of weakness or having bad manners or a crappy coach or dating the wrong dude. And in round two, we thought Ronda Rousey was the Anderson Silva, the John Jones, the George St. Pierre of women's MMA. And then it turned out, wait a second. Is she the Matt Hughes of women's MMA? What? Because that would be a bummer for her. And in round three, we made history in more ways than one this weekend since Saturday at 11 o'clock in the one true time zone marked the first time ever that Dana White, Joe Rogan, and Chris Cyborg Justino were probably all making exactly the same face. And in round four... Hashtag the Yejaychik revolution continues. Or does it? And in round number five, this Ronda Rousey stuff was fun, but everybody forget about it right away because who's excited for Neil Magny versus Kelvin Gastelum? Yay! All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes from John Oakes. He writes, Crow Cop's frank admission of PED usage last week cast an interesting light on the issue in general and the USADA measure, uh, measures in particular. We know that PEDs ultimately help on fight night, but I understand our understanding of their uses from the outside is slowly taken on more nuance. Crow Cop's admission sort of shrugged off his violation as a necessary measure in his mind to get his shoulder near whole. 
And in fighter logic, this probably doesn't feel like cheating. USADA became involved because the UFC MMA community finally admitted, admitted that there was a huge problem. How much of this quote-unquote problem was fighters using PEDs solely to rehab injuries so they could show up to their fight? Does the continuing rash of injuries and late-notice matchups or cancellations signify what happens when fighters are convinced they'll be caught rehabbing with PEDs? Lastly, as someone who wants a clean sport and also hates when a dream matchup gets foiled, how much of my previous enjoyment of the sport must I now look back upon and give credit to PEDs for allowing. Wow, that's a lot going on in that There's question. There's a lot of questions there, uh, but I think that the, the soul of this question is a good one, yeah. and that is that Mirko Krokop last week uh, kind of simultaneously announced his retirement while uh, outing himself, kind of, as a PEDs user, and then, then uh, after the fact, after there was a bit of a hubbub about it, it turned out, well, at least USADA came out and said that they had already, uh, initiated a PED's investigation into Mirko Krokop, uh, before his retirement announcement. So, uh, ultimately at this point, we may have a bit of a ch- chicken and the egg type scenario well, here. But it seems like from what everybody is saying right now, they initiated the investigation into a potential anti-doping policy violation based on him saying, both to the UFC and maybe even to USADA mm-hmm. and on his blog, of course, that he had used HGH. Just a little bit. Just a little sure, bit just of HGH. Just a little co- cocktails of various drugs yeah. to continue his martial times. You're, you're going to do some blood plasma injections. Yeah, there's going to be a little HGH in you there. You get up there to the age of Mirko Filipovich and you're trying to continue your mar- your martial times. It's going to take a cocktail of various drugs yeah. and injections into your busted-ass shoulder. It's your like pile of trash shoulder. You're going to like a Mexican restaurant, eating some sauce on the table, and then going, wait a minute, is there cilantro in this? Well, yeah, there's going to be a little cilantro in there, man. Come on. What do you expect? There's going to be a little HGH in your blood plasma injections. In in answer to John Oakes's, at least one of his questions about whether fighters are using PEDs primarily to rehab from injuries, I would say, A, probably a lot of fighters are actually doing that. In fact, uh in baseball, I think it ultimately came out that uh, one of the primary reasons that a lot of guys were using banned substances was to rehab from injuries, get back on the field, because the season in baseball is so long and so grueling. And clearly we know from a lot of hard-earned experience in mixed martial arts at this point that uh, the training camps are very grueling, the, the people aren't making a ton of money, and uh, they don't get paid if they don't fight. So I bet that there is, in fact, a lot of performance-enhancing drugs being used to do stuff like rehab from injuries. And B, I would say as an addendum to that, uh, everybody who's doing it is justifying it to themselves somehow. Right. And, you know, that that is probably one of the primary ways where they're just saying either everybody else is doing this or, hey, I'm just doing this to, to keep myself right. Yeah, and see, that's where I can see the where the sympathy comes from in a situation like this. And I agree that it's probably happening a lot of times where guys are doing it to rehab or to get healthy enough to fight or in their minds stay healthy enough to fight i also think sometimes that's how it starts and then it becomes something else because once you've used some of this stuff you don't want to get off of it and i've read enough pro wrestler autobiographies to know that everybody who is doing the stuff thinks they have a good reason while they think the other people doing it are taking some kind of easy way out or taking some cheap way to the top and I also think that the problem is not that the, the substances themselves are bad or immoral or something. The problem is that, can your opponent do it too? No, he can't. He can't do it without breaking the rules and potentially earning a suspension and a heavy fine and all that. Well, then you can't do it. That's why you can't do it. Because it's not allowed for either guy. So if the one dude follows the rules, he ends up falling behind, basically. Because I'm sure that... uh 
any dude in the heavyweight division who's over the age of 22 at this point, which is almost all of them, he's probably going to get a little banged up in training camp, and he'd like to put a little HGH in his blood plasma injections, I'm sure. But he can't do it. He can't do it uh, according to the rules, so there, therefore you can't do it. It doesn't matter like, how sympathetic you can make it sound once you're already kind of outing yourself. Yeah, and then the, the other part of this question about how much of, of your previous enjoyment of, of – uh the past of mixed martial arts has to be colored now by your current understanding of, of steroids. Uh, I'm going to say none, man. Cause, cause fuck it. You know what I mean? Like we all gain more knowledge as we grow older and we become a little bit more jaded and we find out stuff we didn't know. Uh, and Toby Keith would probably say, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then or something, write a damn country song about it. But I'm saying That's good. this, Let's get on that right now. I'm saying this as a guy who was, the biggest Randy Couture fan in the world back before I became a professional mixed martial arts journalist. The natural? And like, yes, the natural. And are we really going to sit here in 2015 with straight faces and say 50-year-old Randy Couture was out there looking like 20-year-old Randy Couture whipping Tim Sylvia's ass uh, without a little help on the side? Because even I, Randy Couture supporter number one, would find that hard to believe. But you know what? I'm not going to go back and erase that. I'm not going to... I'm not going to go back and take away the wild madcap weekend I spent in Vegas watching Randy Couture beat Chuck Liddell's ass in Couture Liddell 1 with the money that I won when I went to the uh, sports book and saw that Randy Couture was an underdog and laughed my ass off while waiting in line. I'm not undoing that. Those were good times, man. That sounded like really positive times for you. It was, it was incredible. Wish I could go back. Turn back the clock. I just want to know what this means for the other Randy Couture, Rich Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Like, does this, do you, uh, like, go back after the fact and rewind and, like, change your enjoyment of a certain thing based on, on your knowledge of, of today? I don't think that that's a conscious decision either way. I think that it's something that either happens when you gain the knowledge that makes you potentially think differently on it or it doesn't. And it's not something that you can talk yourself into or out of once you have that knowledge. Um, so also though, I think that there is a case to be made that there were different eras of MMA as far as PED stuff goes. And we talked about this a little bit with the Vitor Belfort, Dan Henderson trilogy, because that spans several different eras of it. And so I don't think you can apply necessarily the exact same standard or the, or the exact same uh, logic to guys using now in this USADA era and guys who are using in pride when they would not drug test you unless you asked them to. And even then it was a dude knocking on your hotel door, handing you a Dixie cup just to make you feel good about what was going on. There were different stuff going on. And, you know, hey, if you were a fighter in pride and you looked around and realized, well, holy shit, everybody here is on steroids and they're going to try and take my head off. I better find out what they're on and get on some of it to try and level the playing field. I don't know how mad I can get at you over that. Uh, at the same time, just because you can say, hey, everybody was doing it at one time, that does not act as your past to just keep doing it, especially in a sport where you know, brain trauma is often the outcome. Well, let's move on. Thanks, John Oaks, for writing us a question with a million questions inside it. The next question this week comes to us from Matt Pasco. He writes, can we take a moment to discuss the real, quote-unquote, sleeper fight of UFC 193, Stefan Struve versus Jared Rocholt? I get it. I see what he did there. Well, I'm sitting in the stadium. I started to – so this guy was actually there. 
He writes, while, I'm, while I was sitting in the stadium, I started to wonder what this fight said about the men inside the octagon and what this means for their careers moving forward. After 16 fights in the UFC, can we call time on the idea that if Stefan Struve was to master his reach advantage, he would be a contender at heavyweight? Is it safe to say that after 34 pro fights, that ship has sailed on Struve using his reach and apparent striking skills to his, to his advantage? And what about Jared Rocholt? 14-2 and two overall with six wins from seven in the UFC. How far? That must be an Australianism. They're saying six wins from seven. Sure, let's assume that. How far can he go with this fan unfriendly style of fighting? Is he destined to become the heavyweight Ryan Bader? Uh, so yeah, R.E. Stefan Struve, Ben. This was a fight where I thought, hey man, Stefan Struve comes out here, gets a big win over Jared Rochalt, probably establishes himself as a, you know, a guy who's viable in the heavyweight division again. And after all is said and done, still only 27 years old, which makes him approximately one decade younger than anyone else in the division. And then he comes out there and he kind of lays an egg against Jared Rochalt, controlled on the mat. I would say, is the way to describe this one. Yeah, well, for the first two rounds. And then the third round, so worried about being taken down and controlled on the mat that he couldn't really get himself to go after Jared Rochelle. He was too concerned that if he started to open up, he'd leave himself open for a takedown, which you know maybe he would have. But it also seemed like what we've seen of Jared Rochelle lately, it's becoming pretty clear that he can take you down and kind of control you there. Can't really do a whole lot to the better fighters in the division to hurt them or put them in any danger. Once he has them down, and then we'll start to slow down in the third round. He doesn't quite have the cardio to keep doing that for three rounds, uh, much less five if he ever finds himself in a title fight. But I think you could tell a lot about how his corner thought it was going to go when midway through the second round, you could hear, first of all, you could hear Mark Lehman at times just becoming frustrated and yelling at Jared Rochelt, please pass the guard and do something. And midway through the second round, his corner shouts out, you're halfway through the fight, which... That's not something you say to a guy who you think is out there trying to finish. Yeah. Um, Jared Rocholder, though, I think becomes something of an interesting character in the heavyweight division. I do feel like Matt Pascoe's uh, comparison to being the heavyweight Ryan Bader is is a sharp one, uh, but also like kind of kind of accurate. And, uh, you know, here's a guy who's only 29 years old himself, which. What? Really? Th- yeah. Does not make him. Uh, the old dog in the heavyweight division by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he has not really fought very much high level UFC competition. He's six and one as noted in the, in the, uh, the listener mail, but Stefan Struve is sort of the, the highest profile and best fighter he's fought in the octagon so far. Uh, his last fight was the, that one against dad bod, Timothy Johnson, uh, where he dominated it and then damn near got knocked out in like the last there, 30 That seconds. was another instance where that exact same thing happened to him. So, I guess my message coming out of this fight would be, yeah, it was a stinker. Yeah, Stefan Struve has an awful lot of wear and tear on the tires at this point at only 27 years old. But all is not lost, I don't think, for either of these guys. I don't think we should be hanging, you know, uh, on Stefan Struve's every move from here on out, wondering when he's going to turn into the, you know, the, the the kickboxer we all dream that he would be, a guy who controls the range and uses his size to his advantage. But at the same time, like he's certainly not finished. He certainly has time to to turn it around if if he wants and if his body will allow. Uh and you know, by the same token, Jared Rochold, he hasn't gone out there and done anything to wow us. He's not he doesn't have a style that is gonna please everyone, but now he's got a three fight win streak in the UFC heavyweight division. He just beat Stefan Struve. You're gonna have to do something with the guy. And uh as we know, having a three fight win streak in the heavyweight division is like having a six fight win streak in any other division. So I guess you gotta kinda match him up with 
with some level of contender after this, don't you? Can we talk for a second about Jared Rochelt's tattoo? The tattoo on his chest that makes it look like his chest has been ripped open to reveal the American flag underneath. Now, that's actually not that uh, unique of a tattoo in the MMA sphere, right? Like, there's a lot, a surprising number, I would say, of tattoos that are like, hey, my skin has been ripped open to reveal uh, the pistons and, like, gear, gear wheels underneath. That makes some sense. That's trying to indicate that you are some sort of robot or cyborg type mechanism, Well, Jake Rosholt is trying to indicate that if you tear his heart open, what you see is the stars and stripes in there beating. That doesn't make any sense. Living and breathing the American way, my friend. That does not make sense. The big show, Jared Rosholt. There's one big show that I will recognize, and it's not Jared Rosholt. Next question this week comes from Adam Perugino. He writes, Mark Hunt versus Bigfoot. I think I'm done with both these fighters. Bigfoot clearly can't absorb damage anymore, and while Mark Hunt looked good in victory, I can't help but remember how I felt watching him get dismantled by Miocic, Verdum, and JDS. Since Mark Hunt won't, I don't see him going any. Oh, since Mark Hunt, since Mark Hunt won, I don't see him going going anywhere. But is it time to let Bigfoot return to the mountains so he can enjoy the rest of his life feasting on goats and frightening hikers? Bigfoot, Yeti, and Chupacabra are basically the same thing, right? Wow. Uh, that took a turn I was not expecting mm, there. It took the a end. turn into cryptozoology <laughs> there toward the end of that I one. I know that's one of your favorite fields. In answer to the question, no, those are three different creatures. Chupacabra, certainly. Yeah, that's like a small dog-like uh, hyena coyote type thing. Bigfoot and Yeti, though? I mean, that's like... Different parts of the world, different hair color. No, that's like G.I. Joe and his camo fatigues and then G.I. Joe and his snow fatigue things. It's basically the same. It's a seasonal difference, really. Now You know what? Now we'll hear from all the cryptozoologists out there in the CME listening audience. I would not be surprised to know that there are a lot of cryptozoologists calling you a Bigfoot racist out here. Okay, let's talk about Mark Hunt, though, because I agree that Bigfoot seems like he is increasingly done, and I also do not expect Bigfoot to accept the fact that he is increasingly done anytime soon. He just doesn't seem like he's going to go out that easily. But Mark Hunt, all right? So... It seems like we went under, we underwent several changes in our collective MMA fan thinking, Mark Hunt, right? Before, yeah. where he was kind of a joke and he came over from Pride and then the UFC was trying to pay him basically not to fight, pay him just to get rid of him and pay out his contract. Then he became this redemption tale. He goes on this win streak. He gets the rally for Mark Hunt, all that stuff going. Uh, he loses a couple here or there, but he had that great fight against uh, Bigfoot. Uh, before we found out that Bigfoot might have had a little bit too much of the TRT going on. Just some HGH in his plasma injections, man. No big deal. <laughs> Trying to continue his martial times. But it seemed like, okay, Mark Hunt was doing awesome, and then when he started fighting the higher echelon of the division, your mm-hmm. your JDSs, your Verdooms, your Stipe Miosiches, uh, that's when he seemed to have bumped his head up against the, the upper limit of his abilities. But I don't necessarily know if that means we need to decide we're done with Mark Hunt. I still think, you know, his age sure makes you think it's not going to go on forever, and he has taken a whole lot of blows to the head, even if it hasn't seemed to bother him most of the time. But there is still a place for Mark Hunt to go out there and put on the kind of entertaining fight night slash fight pass events that the UFC would like to do. There's a place for him. There's a home for him here in the landscape if he wants it. Yeah, and if anything, 
maybe this entire booking of this fight does both these guys kind of a disservice because, I mean, you understand why they would do it because Mark Hunt and Antonio Silva had that epic majority draw fight back in December of 2013, also in Australia, uh, that one fight of the night and got Dana White to print up t-shirts that said Mark Hunt versus Bigfoot 2, uh, and everyone went gaga over it, and then, as you said, it turned out Bigfoot Silva was a little bit too high on the TRT at the time. Uh, but then, you know, both guys need something to do. You've got this second fight come or second show coming up in Australia. You can understand the rationale by booking this around the booking of this, especially since their first fight did end in a draw. But at the same time, like you're just, you're asking us to be disappointed by this. You're asking us to compare this fight to the awesome slobber knocker that these guys had the first time and, and come out you know, feeling like Bigfoot Silva is done and like Mark Hunt can still go, but his best days are behind him and that the ending of this was kind of anticlimactic and all that stuff. Uh, and it's probably all true, man. But at the same time, it's just sort of like, I don't know what else we might have even expected from this fight besides to come out from it feeling melancholy. Sure. Okay. And especially on this fight card where it was not anything close to the main reason anybody's buying it. It's a little bit of a a taste for the Australian fans, something that, okay, you know this guy, Mark Hunt, that's your dude. You're going to show up and, and buy tickets for somebody like that. But, I mean, there. that's what I'm saying, I guess, is that there is a place for that kind of guy who can serve a few different functions for the UFC. The question is, though, do you just keep him away from the very top heavyweights, use him in sort of a dual gatekeeper slash fun slobber knocker kind of role and decide, okay, we're not even talking about any more rallies for Mark Hunt. Mark Hunt is not fighting for a title. He's not even fighting number one contenders anymore, uh, but he can entertain because I think that we for a while assumed that Mark Hunt would be pretty, re- pretty down with a role like that. And if you talk to him, you find out that's not so much the case. Mark Hunt is like most of these other fighters out there who thinks that he could be the best fighter in the world and wants to prove it. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is Mark Hunt versus the big show, Jared Rocholt? Would watch. Coming up here, let's do our final question of the listener mail portion of the show. This question comes to us from Tyler Pebley, or Peebly. He writes, so how about Uriah Hall? I can't help but think back to when Hall was on Tough, talking to Chael Sonnen about the mental game and Hall's difficulties. Can we chalk this up to him just not being mentally focused during every fight, or is there more to it? discourse uh did you think this looked like a fight where uriah hall was not into it because i don't know that i came away with that impression i thought he just uh kind of got schooled by a better fighter yeah i think that that narrative maybe has taken hold too much to the point where anytime uriah hall does not come out there and beat somebody's ass the first explanation people reach for is that it was a mental defect and i agree i think robert whitaker is a tough guy a tough dude to fight right there and uh, Hall put up a, a strong showing in that fight and just didn't win it. I, I don't think that I saw anything that made it look like he was quitting or that he wasn't aggressive enough or that he, he wasn't mentally tough enough. Uh, I think you can make that case for some of his other fights. Like, for instance, that fight with Rafael Natal where he did not go after it to try to seal it as much as he could have and then lost a split decision and, and kind of had himself to blame for not trying to make the case more clearly. But this one was kind of a dogfight on both sides. I don't know that you can... Blame him for anything except for not winning, and that's a tough fight to win. Yeah, it seems like an awful high standard to hold Uriah Hall to that, like, 
he has to be the very best or else we're going to be like, oh, his heart's not in it. And maybe that's because he looks like he should destroy everyone. Guy looks good getting off the bus. Or some of the stuff we've seen from him in the past makes you think like, okay, why can't that guy show up every single time? But he's not the only one you could ask that about. And plus, he's coming off that awesome finish of Gay Garden Musasi, but I think maybe people got so caught up on that finish, they forgot what happened in the first round of that fight, which was Musasi took him down and pretty much schooled him on the mat and showed that Paul still has some holes in his game. So I don't know if we should necessarily go from, hey, why can't he just jump and kick TKO this guy like he did Musasi? You know, we talked before about that one. Did he get lucky? Uh, that kind of stuff is tough to recreate. You know, whether you think it was lucky or not. And especially against a, a guy like Robert Whitaker, who is showing, uh, especially here lately, that he is somebody to be taken seriously. I don't think losing to that guy proves that uh, you have some kind of problem with your brain that you need to fix. Yeah, and let's not forget Uriah Hall takes this fight not on terribly short notice, but he did step in for Michael Bisping when Bisping got injured uh, end of September, early October. So, you know, about like a month and a half to get ready for it. Uh, it was about three times, what, like four months? Uriah Hall, yeah, yeah, he's been on a he's been been on a real busy schedule, uh, so you know you can kind of understand if he comes out and has a flat performance. I think, uh, especially against a guy like Robert Whitaker, who you mentioned is very tough. He's won four fights in a row now, uh, last two over Brad Tavares and and Uriah Hall, um, and uh, three in a row now since moving up to middleweight, right from welterweight. Yeah. That's where he was at before. Uh, so he's a guy who seems like. He could have a bright future at only 24 years old and now has has stacked up a couple of uh, victories over, you know, known guys in the division. Um, I wonder how Michael Bisping's feeling. You think we're going to put this one back together or uh, is Bisping probably going to maybe going to be like, eh, I'm good. Do something else. Yeah. Find somebody else. I guess it depends what else there is available in the middleweight division because Michael Bisping is one of those guys, as we talked about before, where, you know, hey, me. You could probably convince Nick Diaz if he's able to uh, get his regulatory issues out to fight somebody like Michael Bisping. He's, he's got enough of a name that you can throw him in there with some of those other guys who are hanging around and unsure what they're going to do. And if I'm Michael Bisping and you try to book me against Robert Whitaker, at this point, I'm starting to think, wait a minute, am I, am I starting to look a lot like a stepping stone to some of these other guys in the division and maybe even to the UFC? If you're Michael Bisping's agent, maybe you call up the UFC and you're like, all right, hear me out on this. Michael Bisping versus Dan Henderson 2 at UFC 200. So what do you think? agent is like a uh, a bookie in yes. Queens or mm-hmm. something? Yes, exactly. Okay. Who do you think Michael Bisping's agent would be? Obviously, he's a bookie in Queens. Okay. All right. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss in the MMA world from Tuesday through Thursday when we're not recording the damn podcast. Uh, it's fun. It's short. Uh, you'll like it. It'll, it'll catch you up on the, on everything that's happened during the week. And if you don't like it, as we always say, easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, we talked on the podcast last week and maybe the week before, and I wrote a thing on Bleacher Report last week, uh, you know, hypothesizing that if Holly Holm went out against Ronda Rousey and fought a perfect fight, that she would have a chance to win, maybe even a good chance, uh, which was something that I think put her in stark contrast to, you know, Rousey's other most recent opponents. Uh, Betch Kohea comes to mind. Uh, I'm not sure she goes out there and fights a perfect fight if, if she has a chance to win. But Holly Holm clearly comes into this fight the best athlete that Rousey has faced. Uh, you know, the, uh, a person who can go out there and match her physically in size and strength. Uh, and a person who had impeccable skills on the feet if she was able to keep the fight there. I just don't know that anyone totally expected her to go out there and have a perfect fight, which was essentially what happened. In fact, you might even say more impressive than than even a perfect fight because Rousey did get her to the ground uh, once and Holly Holm managed to get right back up and escape the uh, the armbar attempt and then ended up taking Rousey down herself a little while later. Well, um, even that one, though, she did not – Ronda did not really get her to the ground there. She tr- she went for one of her throws. Uh, Holly Holm stopped it, got around behind her, and basically uh, wrestled her down and then realized, oh, I'm in danger of getting up in a Kat Zingano situation, leaving my arm out here, and pulled it back in time. Uh, and then the other times where she tried to clinch her up against the fence and do that Ronda Rousey thing that she does, you could tell that Holly Holm had prepared for that – uh, very well, that she immediately was hand-fighting to keep Ronda Rousey from even getting close to her setup position for that uh, and basically just shut down every attempt that she had at getting the fight to the ground. Uh, I think, though, that maybe one of the things that we talked about this at some point in, in past podcasts about how home style would match up with Ronda Rousey. Yeah. And one of the things that surprised me was that we had mentioned before, you know, the criticism of Holly Holm in the UFC so far has been that she doesn't go after people enough. She kind of stays on the outside of that distance, doesn't really come on and and move in and try to hurt them and finish them, and that maybe Ronda Rousey, the person who's known for getting all up in your face, could help remove some of that deficiency from her style because Ronda Rousey is going to press the fight one way or another. And I was surprised at how well Holly Holm was able to use that to her advantage. She let Ronda Rousey walk into left hands over and over again, never really let herself get trapped up against the cage. Her footwork was excellent, always bringing it back to the center where she wanted it. And uh, when she, you could see it, especially starting uh, the second round, when she realized that left hand is there kind of whenever I want it, and Ronda Rousey had not figured out a solution to it, that's when it went from, hey, Holly Holm is doing surprisingly well in the first round to, wait a minute, Holly Holm fixing to win this fight. Yeah. Uh, and Jack Slack right now has a pretty good technical breakdown of how she did that on Fightland. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I didn't get a chance I to have. read the whole thing, but, uh, it's just like one of those ones where you read it and, and, you know, to the layman, you don't notice all the kind of small technical stuff that's going on during the fight. But then once it's pointed out to you, it becomes even more impressive, uh, than before. And so this was, uh, a, a kind of a picture perfect performance from Holly Holm. And I think it was Esther Lynn, the, uh, MMA fighting, uh, photographer who posted on on Twitter that it's just inspiring to see a person become the best version of themselves in the biggest possible moment that they face in their professional life and and I agree with that I think that you know we have no reason but to feel good for Holly Holm who with all of her interactions with the mixed martial arts world has always seemed like a a pretty good person all the way around and so I think that it's uh you know it's it's a feel good moment to have someone like that come up against this enormous test and pass it with such flying colors. 
It is. And it's also one where you could see it all over her face right after she won it, where you you plan for this, you plan you game plan, you you're telling yourself, okay, that it's gonna go great, here's what we're gonna do if it doesn't go so great, and then it goes absolutely perfect, and it seemed to be this moment where you could watch it kind of sinking in for her like because you can imagine what it might feel like to be this massive underdog in a fight against somebody who is known for just dominating opponents. You come out there in the first round and you you do well and you're trying to tell yourself, okay, don't get cocky. It's not over yet. We still have to finish this thing. And then you do finish it and all at once you realize, holy shit, you did it. Uh, and that's one of the... It reminds you that that's one of the crazy things about this sport. One of the great things about it is... The way, you know, I think an upset in general is one of the greatest things you can see in sports, one of the most exciting things you can see in, in sports, and the way in mixed martial arts and in combat sports in general, those upsets can happen just in an instant. You know, it's not the kind of thing where you go out there and you see a football team that's supposed to lose and they gradually win. It's she goes out there, she wins the first round, knocks her out the start of the second one, and boom, that's it. It's over with, and the world has changed, uh, this little part of the world anyway, really quickly. Uh, and I think that that was a, a really memorable moment, and I wonder how that moment is going to play for the fans who aren't necessarily mixed martial arts fans, like we've talked about, who tune in to see Rousey. Some of them, you know, tune in to see Rousey hoping to see Rousey get her ass kicked, and I'm sure they're right. very pleased with that. Uh, others tune in because they're huge Rousey fans. Now Holly Holm is the champion. Does How much of that carries over to Holly Holm? Especially when, if she, you know, obviously they're probably going to try to book a rematch at some point. If Holly Holm maintains the title and ends up fighting people like Misha Tate and maybe even Cyborg, other people in the division, Ronda Rousey's not involved, how much of that luster has transferred over to her and will stay with her for those fans? Yeah, well, then I think you get into the situation that I joked about at the top of the show where Ronda Rousey turns out to be the Matt Hughes of the women's bantamweight division, someone who was extremely dominant in their time but, like, was facing overmatched competition. And as soon as the George St. Pierre's of the world show up, they kind of fall by the wayside. Uh, I don't know if that will ultimately turn out to, to be Ronda Rousey's fate or not. I'm sure we can talk about that more in, in round two and round three. But I did watch this event with my friend Kevin Van Valkenburg, uh, who I've known since high school and is now is a, a features writer at ESPN the magazine uh, and and would be a guy that you would classify as the casual fan, not an MMA fan, but wanted to come over to my house to watch this fight just because uh, Ronda Rousey was going to was going to fight. And he obviously had become aware of her kind of mainstream celebrity. And as soon as it was as it was over, as soon as she had been knocked out, he was like, man, I wonder if there is like a world full of little girls out there right now whose parents let them stay up late to watch this, <laughs> who are wearing their Ronda Rousey Halloween costumes, who are just crying their eyes out. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what does happen to the women's bantamweight division, how we move forward from this, especially uh, if you're the UFC, I would say again, as an addendum, uh, don't go naming the pay-per-view after someone because we know what happens at this point. Not even Ronda Rousey can rise above the, uh, the curse of UFC 49 supernatural or whatever. Uh, but yeah, as far as Holly Holm is concerned, um, Rousey said some things before this about, about how she didn't think Holly Holm would want the, uh, the championship lifestyle, which maybe we can read into in hindsight more than when it actually happened. But, uh, I think she's going to be a different kind of champion than Ronda Rousey was. She seems like, uh, you know, willing to do the media stuff, but, but I don't think is going to revel in it quite the way Ronda Rousey did. And that could turn out to, to, uh, be trouble at the box office. Maybe. I don't know. We all agree that Holly Holm is a good person, uh, and likable. And we, and, and I think MMA fans want to watch her, but is she going to capture that 
uh, fringe audience that Ronda Rousey did. Well, that's the thing I wondered when I heard Rousey saying that. I don't know if Holly Holm wants this fighter or this champion lifestyle. And I heard Dana White saying it too, uh, with regards to Misha Tate talking about how she might retire if the UFC doesn't, you know, give her a better deal or let her know where she's going. Uh, and him saying, you know, not everybody can handle being the champion and everything that goes along with it. You look at the various champions in the UFC, it's pretty clear that there are a lot of different ways to be the champion. And the same requirements are not asked of everybody. And it seemed like the UFC, I'm sure we'll talk about this in round two, asked more of Rousey than it did of anybody else. And she did not say no very often from everything we could tell. So I don't know if it's necessarily we should think, hey, can Holly Holm do what Ronda Rousey did outside the cage? Because the answer seems probably no. Uh, Few people could do what Ronda Rousey did outside the cage. But I don't know if you necessarily need to. I think for Holly Holm, the big test right now is going to be, you're probably going to have to beat her again to prove that it wasn't a fluke, whether you like it or not. Uh, you're probably going to have to prove that you really are the champion. And then I think that's when we'll start to find out a little bit more about exactly what kind of champion she's going to be. And I, you're right, she'll definitely not be the kind of champion that Ronda Rousey was, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. No, I don't know that anybody else really could could be that kind of champion, even if they wanted to. Uh, lots more Rousey talk coming up in round two. Do you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me here at the end of round one, like we traditionally do, or do you want to save it? Let's save Labor it. Labor in the show, just make people wait for it. Yeah, let's do it at the end of round two. All those two. people out there that are just, that's the only reason they're tuning in, so here are Are You Fucking Kidding Me's for the yeah. week. Gonna have to wait. Get comfortable, jerks. At least, at least a few more minutes. We're gonna talk Ronda Rousey. That happens right now. Well, Ben, there's a lot of ways for us to approach this unexpected loss for Ronda Rousey, uh, and I don't fully know exactly where we want to start out with it, uh, except to say that I think that we have talked about this on the podcast before, and that is that there's so many ways to lose in mixed martial arts that a lot of times I think people gain this notoriety as being unbeatable. Uh, because they have legitimately been incredibly dominant, but they're, you know, it, it, they still have painted an incomplete picture for us just because, especially in the case of Rousey, uh, she wins so quickly and so dominantly and she's been so much better than everyone else in her weight class. So it's not a question really of her being overrated, I don't think, but she certainly, uh, we certainly had not seen her face a ton of adversity, had not seen her face a ton of different styles. I realized that kind of the day before the fight. I was just looking around on the internet for some uh, research purposes for something I was writing. I looked on the fight metric uh, Ronda Rousey page, and I went through it. And if I was reading it correctly, I believe that it said no one has ever kicked Ronda Rousey in the legs in her entire mixed martial arts career. How can that be? It had Misha Tate listed as 0-1 for significant strikes to the to the legs during their fight that went three rounds. But that was the only one. Everyone else was 0-0, and I guess it kind of makes sense when you think about how quickly she was finishing a lot of those people. And not that Holly Holm went out and kicked her in the legs, but I thought to myself, geez, man, there's just a lot that we haven't seen happen to this woman, and we have no idea how she will respond to it. Holly Holm goes, goes out there and, as Jack Slack said, played the matador to Rousey's bull and ends up like kind of undressing her in a way. Well, and even Holly Holm said that she didn't want to throw 
leg kicks or even really too many body kicks because you don't want to give a grappler like Rousey an opportunity to grab that and use that to take you down. But I think that one of the things I learned from watching this fight, and I've watched it several times since then, and it becomes clearer and clearer, is how it seems like maybe Ronda Rousey fell in love with the the legend of Ronda Rousey a little bit and thought that, hey, this thing that has worked on everybody where you just kind of punch your way into the clinch, you don't mind getting hit. And as we've said before, she's not terribly difficult to hit. She doesn't seem to care if you hit her once or twice on the way in because she only feels like she needs to get in once and then she's going to throw you down and she's going to arm bar you. Or, you know, once she gets in, she's going to hurt you with, with knees like she did to Sarah McMahon or throw you down and then punch you in the face until you go limp like she did to Alexis Davis. As soon as she gets in there, she's usually able to end it from there. So she doesn't seem to even focus too much on how to get better from different ranges. And what we saw over and over against Holly Holm is her trying to trap Holly Holm against the fence, trying to punch her way into the clinch, and just not being able to do it. And when she wasn't able to do it, she didn't really seem to have much of a plan B. And I think that's something you see from somebody, like you said, who hasn't faced a ton of adversity, and they're really good at the one thing they want to do. So good, in fact, that they haven't been in a fight where they've had to figure out what do you do when you can't do the one thing that you really want to do. I think that's what we saw here, and it seemed you could see it on Ronda Rousey's face later in the first round, especially in the second round. You could see that genuine concern verging on panic when she realized, I'm not going to be able to do my thing to Holly Holm. And I think that's one of the mistakes. I saw it from several people after the fight criticizing her game plan or... Uh, I saw it even reading a thing on Deadspin today, and they were saying, oh, it looked like she just wanted to stand up with Holly Holm, like she didn't even want to get it to the mat. What, what's her deal? And I think that that's, that's mistaken. I think she definitely wanted to get it to the mat. She just thought she'd be able to do it the same way she usually does it, punching into the clinch, and then when she'd get in there, throwing her down, and she just wasn't able to, you saw her several times, punch her way in and then reach out for that clinch and have Holly Holm either duck under it and get out or just kind of shrug it off. And she didn't really have an answer for that. She did not have a backup plan. Yeah, and the one time she did get into prime hip toss position, uh, Holly Holm was kind of like, nah, not happening, which yeah. was impressive. And one of the moments in the fight where you could kind of feel the momentum building and the and the tide for Holly Holm uh, definitely turning. I've seen a lot of stuff online questioning Rousey's preparation questioning you know what was going on with her leading up to this fight and a couple weeks ago as i'm sure you know that i did the just saying stuff about how she was saying all this stuff that uh ufc champions who have been very dominant traditionally say right before they suffer an unexpected loss made you seem oddly prescient uh, well yeah i'll take it when i can get it man uh and maybe in retrospect the cracks in ronda rousey's shield of invincibility should have been more obvious uh just with the infighting between her mom and her coach and and the kind of scandal of dating Travis Brown, who's officially still married and had recently been under investigation for uh, domestic violence uh, and and Rousey being kind of spread thin. Um, I saw some people saying she didn't look like she was in her normal shape coming into this fight, uh, either at the weigh-in or when she got in the cage. Uh, not that we want to take anything away from Holly Holm, because like we said in round one, her performance was damn near perfect. But are we buying Ronda Rousey having uh, botched her preparations in any way? I think that does, that's at least a legitimate question. I don't know how much we can really sit here and claim to know about her preparations, but we can look at all that stuff and say, if she got distracted at various times and wasn't able to focus as much as she wanted to or put as much as she wanted to into her training camp for this fight, it would not be completely ununderstandable 
you could you could see how that might happen to somebody dealing with that kind of stuff. I think maybe it would have happened to a lot of other people sooner than it happened to her because her life seems to be just getting crazier and crazier with each one of these fights. So I, it wouldn't be surprising if that's one of the explanations here. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the immediate rematch makes sense because I think that there are a lot of questions out there about what exactly did we see? What what was this about? And also, we know Ronda Rousey is a good athlete, a good fighter. Is she somebody who can make adjustments and learn the right lessons from something like this and come back and be even better? I don't know. I mean, those are the questions I think are really worth finding an answer to. And to do that, you, you need the rematch. And plus, if you're the UFC and you happen to like money, the rematch will probably serve that end as well. But it was one of the rare instances where I found myself standing up for Mike Goldberg, where later in the first round, he makes that comment about, you know, that it's takes a lot of energy being a rock star and Joe Rogan immediately does his shut the fuck up Mike Goldberg thing where he tells him why he's wrong and sounds just absolutely disdainful while he's doing it and that was one instance where I was like wait a minute I think even if you disagree with how he phrased it maybe I think he has a point there that you do have to wonder how much all that other stuff that she is required to do and that the UFC seems to love her for her willingness to do all this stuff how did that affect her ability to fully prepare for this fight yeah, you know what? Let's just say kudos to the UFC broadcast team in general during this fight because I was also impressed with uh Joe Rogan, sort of the way he was able to hold it together at the end of this fight where, <laughs> I mean, you know how complimentary he's been about Ronda Rousey in the past. You know that this is an outcome that doesn't please the UFC most likely because, as you said, they do like money and their prime, uh well, sh- somebody unplug the cash machine. If we can go back to the co-main event podcast's nickname for Ronda Rousey in the past, the cash machine is no more. It's empty for the time being, at least, until she comes back. Uh, you know, all things being being equal, even though I know that there were some some gifs floating around of various people making faces in the background of of uh, of the camera. You mean but gifs? Uh, yeah. but Joe Rogan did did a good job, like supporting Holly Holmes' moment and like having a. a a, a post-fight interview that that elevated her performance and in and, and like you know Dana White managed to suck it up and wrap the belt around her waist <laughs> instead of just storming out like Ronda Rousey did. That's, so that's where the bar is. Huh? Can we just say I was impressed with everybody's maturity? Sure. Following this, well, you know, I was interested to see. I think maybe it was on Instagram, Julie Kedzie or, or somebody from the the Jacksons uh, camp people posted the that picture of Holly Holm kind of shaking Ronda's hand, giving her a hug after the fight and saying a couple words to her and a look on Ronda Rousey's face that I don't think we've seen before, like kind of sheepish uh, and, you know, forcibly humbled perhaps. And it was a weird moment. You'd like to know what was going on in each person's head. And I think like in the comments of it, I believe it was the Dean Amin, Keith Jardine, Butte, Montana's own Keith Jardine, uh, opining, I doubt that Ronda Rousey would have been quite so respectful if she had won yeah uh and i hope that that's something we can get into in round three when we talk about what the fuck is going to happen now because i think it'll be really interesting to see how ronda rousey comes back for the from this not only in the cage but also outside of it uh so we can talk about that in round three um before we wrap this up though i just wanted to mention the other uh cool thing from the from the weekend of uh i don't know did you see Dwayne finley's video I did. of the other members of the of the jackson winklejohn team res- responding to the victory uh pri- and especially uh donald Cerrone there obviously in his cowboy hat and western dress shirt uh 
I assume a couple of Budweiser's in to the evening, uh, freaking out with excitement and joy. And that's the kind of stuff that when I see it, it reinforces the things that are good about this sport, the camaraderie and the, you know, uh, the bond that is built between those people who work so hard and then see their teammate Holly Holm go out there and, and do an impossible thing. Yeah. And I mean, I've been in the gym at Jackson's and seen, uh, Donald Cerrone and Holly Holm going head to head in wrestling practice, uh, and, uh, pretty competitive, I would say. Uh, maybe more competitive than a lot of people would assume. Oh, interesting. Also, if you think that Donald Cerrone does not show up to wrestling practice in camouflage wrestling shoes, think again. I would expect nothing else. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then uh, we'll move on to round number three. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I don't know if you know this, Chad, but Ben Askren was supposed to fight as well this I week. I saw something about that. That's right. He was supposed to defend his uh, one welterweight title. I, I don't know if you remember that the last time he defended his one welterweight title, it was against Luis Santos, Sapo, your guy Sapo. Uh, and the fight ended uh, with an eye poke. It was just kind of a disaster. It ended basically before it had really had a chance to get going. We said, all right, let's do it again, brother. They schedule it. Finally going to do it again, brother. Sapo comes in overweight. Not only is he coming overweight, first he comes in, you know, significantly overweight, then drops a little bit, but still a couple pounds overweight. And then Ben Askren wants to, says he'll still agree to the fight, even though it's a non-title fight, as long as Sapo does not show up. You know, I think he said first above 185 the day of the fight, and then above 190. He claims he saw Luis Santos down there chowing down on several breakfasts worth of food the day of the fight before he was supposed to be weighed in the second time. <laughs> I believe he describes him uh, drinking juice the whole thing uh, and was just appalled at this. Then they said that he was going to go to the hospital and get an IV, basically asking making it out that Sapo was intentionally trying to be overweight so that the fight would be called off. I have to say, are you fucking kidding me? That between Ben Askren and Luis Santos, now we have two fights and almost no fighting actually happening. Are you fucking kidding Are me? Are you fucking kidding me? Of all the things that brings Ben Askren's career basically to a screeching halt, even though he still manages to maintain interest in himself, not only outside the UFC, but way outside the UFC, and he runs into a situation like this where he basically, even when he has a fight, can't get a fight. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, there's a lot of uh, glee floating around on the internet in the days following this loss by Ronda Rousey, which I understand. She may have been a little bit overexposed inside the mixed martial arts community. And when you do like Rousey did and, and go so far to establish a public image for yourself, uh, as sort of a heelish figure and brash and, uh, the dominant champion. I can understand that you're not going to get a lot of sympathy when you get KTFO'd, uh, by Holly Holm in, in a title defense where you were like a 12 to 1 favorite. Uh, but I do have to point out Donald Trump, presidential hopeful Donald Trump, uh, who had the time this, this week to, to post a tweet that reads, Glad to see that Ronda Rousey lost her championship fight last night. Was soundly beaten. Not a nice person! Exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, first of all, we all remember that a couple weeks ago, Donald Trump proclaimed that Ronda Rousey liked him as a candidate, to which Ronda Rousey essentially replied, keep my name out of your mouth. And now Donald Trump, I say again, presidential hopeful, has taken the time out of his his busy schedule to snipe back at her and say he was glad that she got knocked out. Are you fucking kidding me? I think we all know how this would have gone if Ronda Rousey had been more receptive to Trump's overtures 
uh, in the, in the court of public opinion. Uh, but I guess, you know, Donald Trump, not afraid to come out and be petty in public. Well, there's one thing we know about Donald Trump. He petty. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. second to think about what's going on in the UFC women's bantamweight division mm-hmm. right about now. Yep. You got Ronda Rousey who just got knocked out, says she's going to go away for a little while, take some time off and, and lick her wounds. You got Holly Holm who just did the knocking out. You got Misha Tate who said that she was thinking about retirement if the UFC could not figure out uh, how to make it right for her money-wise and career path-wise. Uh, then Straight up said you got beat, bitch, doing an interview from a strip club after uh, Ronda Rousey was knocked out. You got uh, Cyborg Justino still gradually seeing if she can get down to be a women's bantamweight fighter. Uh, then other than that, it's kind of chaos around there. Alexis Davis is just pregnant and out of the title picture altogether. Uh, then you got people like Kat Zingano. You got Jessica I who just got beat. What is going on, man? What is the future going to look like? It seems like we're probably going to angle for a rematch between Holm and Rousey, probably at UFC 200 if I had to bet and nobody got injured. I'd say that's what happens there. And then what, man? Then what? Well, I imagine in my mind Joe Silva being at the UFC headquarters late at night all by himself and just kind of slumping into a dark room where he turns on a flickering fluorescent light walks over to a whiteboard that says UFC 200 on it and just starts erasing. <laughs> just starts erasing First of stuff. all, I think Sean Shelby handles the women's divisions, but okay, I see what you're, it's funnier, what you're doing there. It's funnier with Joe Silva. <laughs> even though he doesn't even live in Las Vegas, he's probably not hanging out at the UFC uh, main offices. Uh, yeah, like I said in the last round, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how Ronda Rousey comes back from this, not only as a fighter, but like as a personality, as a human being in this division, because... Uh, she went so far and for so long took pains to like create this public image for herself, uh, as kind of mean and like a dominant champion and would say stuff like, I'm going to beat all of these girls, retire undefeated and then skip off into the sunset. And when you say stuff like that, you never imagine that there will be a highlight of you dropping unconscious to the canvas with blood leaking out of your mouth after you've just been kicked in the face. So from like a psychological standpoint, from a media standpoint, it's going to be interesting, uh, to me to see Ronda Rousey return from this, but I have a feeling that she's going to be able to call her own shot still when she comes back. Like you mentioned, even before this fight, she said she was going to take some time off after it. And after it was over in the short statement that she released on Instagram, she said she was still going to do that. So I think a lot of what happens next depends on how long she plans to be away and what she's interested in doing when she comes back. Uh, I think that the UFC would obviously very much like to have an immediate rematch uh, because of that whole money angle again. Um, and, and I don't think that there would be 
terribly excited to take the chance that Holly Holm would lose yeah, by that, putting her up against someone else. So well, imagine I, if you put her up against Misha Tate and Misha Tate beats her, and then what are you looking at? Another Ronda Rousey Misha Tate fight? No, make that money, son. Right. You're going to want to do Holm Rousey too. Yeah, so I think we probably end up having the U the women's bantamweight belt on the shelf for about the first six months of 2016 until we get around to UFC 200 in July, when I'm almost certain you'll see Ronda Rousey against Holly Holm. Uh, probably as the headliner there. Uh, but yeah, man, a lot of questions, you know, would, does Ronda Rousey want a tune up fight when she comes back? What do you do with Cyborg Justino? Who's trying to get down? And what do you do with Misha Tate? Uh, it's a brave new world out there. And, and a lot of the options I think are good ones. Although this certainly is an instance that reinforces the idea that you can't just build a division around one person because then that person loses. You know what? And that's one thing you mentioned the, some of the gleeful uh, response to Ronda Rousey's loss. And I wonder, you're right that a lot of that has to do with the way that they, the persona that she's kind of built for herself that is going to make some people glad to see you lose. I also wonder, though, especially for the more hardcore fans who know the ins and outs and the behind-the-scenes stuff, how much of it is that the U- she seems like the UFC's person. She seems like the, the company person there, the, the one that they love a lot. Uh, and the one where a lot of the eggs are in that basket and some part of them is going to like to see, uh, the, the, the corporate suits, uh, have egg on their face there, right? I mean, I, I think that that's gotta be part of it. That it seems like obviously they, they put Ronda Rousey in some of these fights and they're hoping, as you say, the cash machine will stay plugged in and Ronda Rousey will win. And then when that plan doesn't go well, I think that there are a lot of people who take joy in that. Yeah. I mean, obviously. And I think especially in this industry, uh, where people, a lot of people fancy themselves rebels and like not into PR, BS and, and not part of the machine, uh, that there's a certain segment of, of fans that like to see the UFC's carefully, you know, made plans go awry. Uh, and they certainly did this, this past weekend. Uh, it's totally understandable. And, and, you know, I, I feel it myself in some instances, although I think that, uh, the glee that surrounds this Ronda Rousey loss is kind of ghoulish in certain ways. Uh, and, um, a lot of the talk, just as it was before she lost, is kind of overblown. You know, we, this, this sport seems to instantly shift gears from this person is unbeatable. They are a god amongst men to, oh my god, Ronda Rousey will never beat Holly Holm. How could she ever close this enormous gulf of skills between them? Like, uh, we can't have them have an immediate rematch because Ronda Rousey would just get dusted again, which, uh, is certainly not a given and, and might not even be the way to bet. I don't know. Uh, but, but yeah, this is a, this seems to be a sport where we're going to take the extreme one way or another. And we certainly have no qualms about an instantaneous about face from thinking that someone is the greatest of all time to then suddenly being like, how did we ever think this person was good in the first place? Yeah. Well, you know, I was wondering when I saw Misha Tate's response to this, where she was you especially beat, bitch. Is that the response <laughs> you're right. talking about? Uh, issued from a gentleman's yeah. club in Las Vegas, yep. I believe. Yeah. Uh, and I can understand her taking a little bit of glee and seeing something bad happen to her longtime nemesis, Ronda Rousey. I also wondered, wait a minute, you haven't thought this through, have you? You haven't thought about what this probably means. Because it means that Ronda Rousey is likely ne- going to get the next title shot when she rematches Holly Holm. All while, as we said before, Cyborg is gradually sh- shrinking down. It's just putting more distance between Misha Tate and the title shot that she says she wants. 
and it makes it seem not totally unlikely that she could just get kind of skipped over. And you see the the stuff that Dana White is saying when he when the reporters ask him about, hey, what do you make of Misha Tate's remarks that she might just retire if uh, the UFC can't make it seem like a better deal for her to keep fighting? And his attitude was basically like, oh, maybe she should retire if that's the way she's thinking. You know, I totally support and think that she makes good points when she talks about why she doesn't want to take some fight pass fight not knowing what it'll do for her career. But the way things are shaking out here, you could just kind of get skipped right over if you're not careful. Yeah, and it was, I mean, what they do, I think, with Cyborg, if they do anything with her, is going to be kind of telling in how talks are going over at the Zufa LLC headquarters when everyone else shows up in the morning to find Joe Silva still there scribbling on the whiteboard. Uh, because if they, if they matched Holly Holma with, with, uh, with Chris Cyborg, well, that would be an incredible about face, wouldn't it? For them spending months and months of being like, well, we can't do Ronda versus Cyborg. We don't even know if she can make 135 and then suddenly be like, oh, wait, somebody else is the champion. Oh, what's Chris Cyborg doing? Bring in her in here. <laughs> uh, and if you don't do that, like I think you were kind of alluding to as you were talking, uh, your second best thing to do with Chris Cyborg could be to put her in a fight with Misha Tate, which if you're Misha Tate and you're talking shit at the Gentleman's Club, Ah, uh, I don't know, man. That might not be the greatest outcome for you, depending on how things go. Uh, and could also reinforce the idea that maybe your bosses weren't that happy about you talking about how you might just retire. But we don't know, man. There's a lot. I mean, you can, you can make the argument, I think, that despite the fact that the, the golden goose got plucked, that the women's man and weight division just got a lot more interesting all the way it around. Did. It did. You know, and the thing with Misha Tate, I don't know if you saw this. I believe it was maybe uh, Claudia Gedalia talking recently about trying to get her title shot at women's straw weight and said that in her conversation with uh, Sean Shelby, he told her, don't worry, I'm not going to Misha Tate you. Ooh. Meaning I'm not going to yank the title shot out from under you after you've been promised it. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that, even from the comfort of the gentleman's club, has got to sting a little bit. Yeah, and well, you, you do work for a company that has never historically taken kindly to that kind of talk. Uh, and, you know, when the UFC is put in a corner, I think that their most obvious response is, is the what Dana White actually said. Uh, maybe she should retire because they know full well that there's not really very many other places where Misha Tate will go to ply her wares and earn a living. So... There you go. Anyway, that's probably going to wrap up our lengthy discussion of the fallout from Holly Holm and Ronda Rousey at UFC 193. Uh, but we're going to move on to talking about the co-main event, which featured the, as Ben said, probably the next woman who's going to end up fighting, fighting Claudia Gadelia. Uh, and that was UFC strawweight champion, Yo, Joanna Yajacek. We're going to talk about what happened to her and that starts right now. Ben, there were two fights at UFC 193 that we thought were set up to be showcase bouts for the UFC's two female champions, obviously in the main event, Ronda Rousey against Holly Holm. And then in the co-main event, the strawweight champion, Joanna Yedjechik against Valerie Letourneau. And neither of those bouts, I think, went exactly like people wanted them to. Clearly, things did not go as poorly for Yedjechik as they did for Rousey in the, in the main event. Uh, but at the same time... 
as we talked about last week, there was clearly a marketing strategy at work here to attach Joanna Jedjacek, who had been very popular with hardcore fans and uh, on the internets, to Ronda Rousey and present her to the inflated pay-per-view audience that was going to tune in to watch Rousey and hope that people liked what they saw from Jedjacek. Now, obviously, she beat Valerie Letourneau and uh, ended up beating her fairly soundly on the judges' scorecards. Uh, but I don't think that this was fully the performance that that people wanted from Joanna Jedjacek. Valerie Letourneau, uh, who was as big of an underdog as Holly Holm coming in, uh, turned out to be a little bit more game than everyone thought and offer up maybe a stiffer test than everyone thought. And it was it turned out to be more of a war of attrition where Jedjacek kind of slowly turned the tide over the course of five rounds uh, and ended up winning a, a decision. Is Joanna Mania still running wild over on your side of the table, or did you think she underwhelmed a little bit this past weekend? I can't really criticize her too much. I think that she won a pretty dominant performance there, and I think Letourneau just turned out to be a lot tougher than a lot of us thought. She was able to use her size and strength kind of early in the rounds. Uh, Yen Jacek pulled away later and really just started to beat Valerie Letourneau up. I mean, you saw her face at the end of that. Her eye looked terrible, and uh, her lead leg was kicked to all hell. So she proved that she could take it. And there were several moments in there where Yen Jacek really stung her with some hard shots, and there seemed to be a brief pause where Valerie Letourneau was saying to herself, okay, that really fucking hurt, uh, but collected herself and came back at her. So, you know, I don't know what you can really criticize your girl Champy for there. And also, you know, she did break her hand in that fight from what she said. It seems like she's headed to surgery now to, to fix that. So all in all, still a pretty dominant performance by her. Maybe she's just spoiled us a little bit to make us think that she's going to put everybody away in devastating fashion. Here she faced a tough opponent who could take a beating, and that's pretty much what Joanna Champion made her do. Yeah, and Valerie Letourneau had been a person who came out there and uh, won several fights that I think that maybe she we thought she was going to lose, including you know, her most recent one before this one against Yedjechik. She'd beaten uh, Marina Moroz, who was the 24-year-old Ukrainian who had talked a lot of junk about the champion. We thought we were going to get into a real Eastern Bloc-style feud there at 115 pounds until Valerie Letourneau put an end to that. Uh, and she did turn out to, I think, be a little bit tougher and a little, she offered up a little bit more stick than I think people expected her to. Um, however, I didn't think that it was, it was the sort of star making performance that, that some people had hoped for from Yed Jacek. And part of that could have been placement on the card. These UFC fights, for whatever reason, feel like they're getting longer and longer. They just feel like they drag on further and further into the night, uh, at least for old man Dundas. When you got 13 fights on the card and, and uh, three of the five fights that are on the pay-per-view card end up going to decision, by the time you get to that co-main event, after it turns out it's going to be a war of attrition, uh, you kind of just want to get things over with, get yeah. to the main event. And, and I don't know if that's a pacing issue or a too-many-fights issue, but uh, it's starting, or starting the main card off with Jared Rochalt and Stefan Struve issue. Yeah, well, there is that too. But it does seem like there's an issue at play in the in the live event uh, pre- presentation that the UFC is going to have to fix. I think because right now it's starting to feel uh, like they have a little bit of uh, you know disrespect for the audience. And like I said when I watched the fight with my with my friend uh, who questioned the fact whether or not Ronda Rousey fans would still be awake. 
to watch her fight at 11 o'clock on in the mountain time zone and one o'clock a.m. on the eastern time zone. So um, I don't think that that's necessarily a Jacek's fault, but I think at the hour after we'd already seen so much fighting, after we'd already had, as you said, Jared Rocholt and and Stefan Struve, I was hoping for a few more highlights personally. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe yeah. that's an unfair expectation. I don't know. I mean, I think it is a lot to expect of her, especially against a tough opponent, and again, probably a tougher opponent than we thought that she was facing there. Uh, I think it's also one of those issues where you want to do this big stadium fight in Australia, right? So you want to try to cram uh, the optimistic hope, I think, was 70,000 in there, and it ended up being more in the mid-50,000 range. So you got to give them something that feels like stadium show, right? Especially if you're going to ask some of them to sit way up in nosebleed seats or something. You're, you you got to give them a show that feels bigger than just, hey, the UFC is coming back to Australia, Ronda Rousey helps do that, but if you can say two title fights, hey, that also adds a little something. It also means that you could be sitting through 25 minutes of one fight that seems like it's clearly headed in one direction. That's just kind of the the potential downside that you invite there. But, you know, I agree that it was not maybe what the UFC had hoped for, that we're going to stick Ioana Champion against a huge underdog on the same fight that Ronda or same card that Ronda Rousey's fighting on and all the Rousey fans who come to see her do her thing will also see another female fighter showing out and will think all right I'm into that person too when do they fight again next and maybe that didn't happen here uh but then again maybe that was just a perfect case scenario that you were hoping for there and as we know in this business you can't always have it go exactly like you planned it out. And if the worst thing that happens is she won a plotting yet one-sided fight and broke her hand in the process, as the Ronda Rousey outcome shows, that ain't the worst thing that could possibly happen to you yeah, there. Good point. Uh, you know how Valerie Letourneau doesn't necessarily help her case is the face she makes when she gets punched really hard. Kind of a Charlie Brenneman hair situation. Where when Charlie Brenneman would get punched really yes. hard or kicked in the face, his enormous afro would like shimmy shake from side to side and you'd be like, oh, that looked like it hurt. Uh, Valerie Letourneau, and, and let's be honest, she got front kicked right in the face. Yeah, which, hard. If it happened to me, I would first cry and then make a dentist appointment. I would not be continuing with the fight. Letourneau did for probably, you know, 20 plus minutes after that. But the face she makes when she gets tagged... If you're a judge at ringside and, you know, uh, one of those judges, heartless bastards, did not even give her that first round when she did her best work, <laughs> probably because of that face. Because you look at that face and you think, oh, that's smarted. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a pause, too. And like a pause in which you can almost see her going, this is stupid. This is a stupid thing to do. I'm a 34-year-old woman. I should not be in here. You think <laughs> this, that's what she's thinking? This is, this is a dumb thing to do with my free time. Yeah. Uh and you can't really blame, I mean, the, maybe that makes it more impressive that she has that moment and then thinks, nah, let's go back at her. Uh, because like you said, I don't know how many of us would have made that decision in that moment. And it certainly looks like Claudia Goodella is going to be up next for Joanna Yet Jacek. They fought once before in December of 2014. Uh, and it was certainly a very close fight. Uh, Yet Jacek ended up winning by split decision, but there are at least some people out there that think Goodella deserved to get the nod. And it was very close. They've probably both gotten better since then. Uh, and as long as we don't get something crazy where, as you said, uh, Goodella gets Misha tated, uh, and we decide to jump right over for the winner of 
of Rose Namajunas and Paige Van Zandt or something crazy like that. Uh, it does seem like she's up next. Were we too quick to anoint Yed Jacek a Rousey-esque unbeatable label? It's given that she's only been the champion for about eight months. Yeah, well, that's what we do, right? As we previously discussed, we see you have one great performance. We're pretty sure that you're the greatest alive. And then you have one where you you win. You go out there and you win, and it's not even in question whether you won or not. And then Chad Dundas is sitting over here talking about how you're a disappointment. Oh, you're going to blame your, me your, for this now. Your family is disappointed in you. Oh, I see. The nation of Poland will turn its back upon you when you return. You know. E- no ticker tape parade this time. Even- not if... Prime Minister of Poland, Chad Dundas, has it. Even as you sit there, you know that there's not a soul alive on this planet who loves sneakerhead slash lowrider bike owning Joanna Yedjechik with her selfies with Mickey Mouse at Disneyland. No one loves that more than I do. You know that. <laughs> Sitting over there, casting your spursions. Just trying to get a rise out of you. And yeah, I really it worked. It. I really enjoy it what worked. happened there. Anyway, so uh, anything else you want to say about this strawweight title fight, about Claudia Gadella coming up, about anything like that? You done? I just hope we don't have to wait too long for it because I do think this is one that you're you're going to want to get in there and uh, get that fight on the books before you have a chance for people to cool too much on you and a champion. Well, yeah, I mean, some of these champions are going to have to fight during 2016, right? If we're going to have the women's bantamweight title on the shelf till July, uh, the featherweight title's on the line next month. You got Weidman and, uh, and, and, uh, and Rockholder scheduled to go. Like, yeah, we're going to have to have title fights there in 2016. Demetrius Johnson's just fight every month. Works for me. Yeah. I don't know if it'd work for the bottom line, but works for me. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number four. We're breezing through these championship rounds, by the way. Really? Yeah, looking I, good. I feel like I'm starting to slow. All right. Well, we bit. got one left and we're going to talk about Kelvin Gastelum and Neil Magny. Oh, so I'm going to have to dig deep for that. I hope you bring your A game. That starts right now. It's less likely than James Tony taking someone down. More improbable than the UFC coming back to your town. But Chad, Chad and Ben are the co-main event. Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. Well, Ben, I know you are excited about this live on Fox Sports 1 from Monterey, Mexico. It's the final of the Ultimate Fighter Latin America 2 coming up on Saturday night featuring the main event, Neil Magny versus Kelvin Gastelum, because God knows we can't get all fired up about one of the biggest upsets in UFC history without being asked to forget it immediately and turn the page to a middling welterweight affair. Ben, what are you most excited about on this card? Kelvin Gaslam trying to get down to 170? Diego Sanchez making his featherweight debut? Henry Cejudo coming back against Eujucier Formesia? Um, I'm hearing a lot of silence over there. Are you fading yeah. on me? Ooh. No, no, I'm in it. I'm in it still. Do we need to get some smelling salts out, send you back to the to the corner to have the Dragon King, Edmonds Targaryen, say, beautiful work, champ? <laughs> Just tell me how great I'm doing as I'm blocking punches in my face. Um... Well, first of all, if you had told me, if you had said, hey, this was the Ultimate Fighter Latin America finale and then just kind of trailed off and waited for me to supply the number, uh, 
I, I this could be tough Latin America six as far as you yeah, know. Yeah, I cannot say I would hey, have nailed it. Let's give them credit here, though. At least they're putting the tough Latin America two welterweight final featuring Eric Montano and Enrique Marine uh, on the fight pass portion of the card. Whereas before, I think when we've done this, those internet only television program finals have made their way onto the main card. Yeah, where we were just like, who the hell are we watching right now? That's right. In this one, at least you got recognizable names like Efren Escudero. Leading off the main card. Am I right? Okay. There you go. Uh, you know, you asked what I'm excited for. I guess this is another one of those situations where the weigh-in is going to provide at least some fun. Wow. Well, that I mean, that alone is telling that I asked you what you were most excited about for this card. And your re- initial response was the weigh-in. We're doing so, it again, brother, for Kelvin Gaslam at Welterweight. And who knows what the outcome of that might be. Uh, we're told that the UFC is paying for his nutritionist, right? So maybe this time the 170 thing is really going to stick. But you never know. And you never know what he'll actually look like if he does make 170. So in that sense, I think that it is there is an interesting narrative here. And to go up against Neil Magny, uh, the guy who, uh, as you recall, was on a pretty good little streak there until he ran into Demian Maya, who basically... Uh, put down the material for his forthcoming jujitsu for MMA DVD uh, and just absolutely taking him apart. And then, you know, Magny bounced back there with a win over uh, Eric Silva, I believe, uh, in a pretty close one, and now goes up against Kelvin Gastelum. So it does kind of seem like uh, we're, we're separating the wheat from the chaff here and also figuring out the welterweights from the middleweights. Uh, so Always important. That, that's, that's interesting enough for me. Yeah, then remember, this was supposed to be Calvin Gastelum against Matt Brown. That's right. Uh, they were going to headline this, which would have been a hashtag would watch kind of fight. But Brown uh, withdrew with an ankle injury that he suffered in training, which I guess if Matt Brown is going to pull out of a fight due to an ankle, that ankle must be pretty fucked up, I would wager. Had he considered putting some HGH in his plasma injection? Yeah, maybe so. Just a little bit. Yeah, just it, throw a, just a pinch of it. I there. would, you know what? If, given what we know about Matt Brown, I would not be surprised to find out he told the doctor to just cut it off, cut that <laughs> ankle off, sew the foot back on, and I'll be good. I'm good to go. Just pack it with chewing tobacco, wrap a, a red bandana around it, hobo style, and then get back in there. Ah, uh, Ben, featherweight contest: Diego Sanchez against Ricardo Lamas. Oh God! It feels like a long time since we've seen the nightmare, but he's going to be fighting down there in Mexico, which I imagine is going to have him uh, fairly pumped up and, and, and ready to go, chanting yes on his way down to the, to the cage there in Monterey. No, uh, I'm going to chant no. You're this gonna is, is going to make me sad, isn't it? <laughs> well, they certainly didn't give the guy a softball coming into the featherweight division. He's going to go out there and try to fight Ricardo Lamas, uh, who's a tough dude. This will be Diego Sanchez's first appearance since June 7th of 2014 uh, when he beat Ross Pearson in a split decision, which, if I remember correctly, was an absolute robbery it was just straight bullshit is what it was so had he lost that he would have been a loser of three in a row and four of his last uh five uh and now he comes in there against ricardo lamas who's one of those guys who kind of seems like he uh eternally flies under the radar uh and he's coming off a loss to chad mendez uh in april of this year but is a tough tough dude at that weight yeah and also come on man diego sanchez we've He's is he at this point the well no Josh Koscheck is still going right uh, now finding new life in Bellator. Other than that, is Diego Sanchez the only tough one alumni still out there doing the damn thing? I believe he is. Uh, at least yeah, as you said, fighting in the UFC. 
um, because uh, Chris Lieben's recent retirement and now jail sentence. So we know he's not going to be making any octagon appearances recently. Mike Swick is done. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. Diego Sanchez, the little last in the UFC. Are you looking at Diego Sanchez's Wikipedia page? I am. Damn it. I was going to ask you to tell me how old you thought I he know. was. Let's, look, let's give the listeners a chance. We'll ask, how old is Diego Sanchez? And we will pause for a second while you try to do the math on how long you've been watching Diego Sanchez. Yeah, don't look, though. Don't cheat. Don't you cheat. Don't look at the Wikipedia don't you page. fucking cheat. See, because I would have said... Probably 37, my I w- age. I would have said he and I are the same age. You would have said you and Diego Sanchez contemporaries. Contemporary, yes, that's exactly right. I would have said at least 35 because I would have figured, well, he, he's probably not as old as his face makes him look based on you know his line of work. Uh, I am surprised and maybe even a little somehow dismayed to report that Diego Sanchez is 33. 33, but coming up on his 34th birthday because his his birthday is listed as uh, New Year's Eve, December 31st. How about that? 1981. Man, I just, I'm prepared to be depressed by what I see in this fight. Okay, what if Diego Sanchez comes out there, Ben, and just starches Ricardo Lamas, though? That might be the worst thing that can happen to him. Well, then he's got new life at featherweight, man. Yeah. Then he's got, then exactly. he's going to jump on the mic and Conor McGregor, he's going to call out Conor McGregor on the mic after it's over. I was. I would assume this is definitely one of those situations where the worst thing that could happen to him is a big knockout victory that tells him that he is reborn in the game and is nowhere near through, and then he's gonna march forward into just repeated head trauma after that. Please don't let that happen. If Kelvin Kelvin Gaslam makes 170 and beats Neil Magny, does that establish him as a, a capital letter guy in the welterweight division? I feel like he needs to make welterweight at least three times in a row before wow. I can buy it. Three times from now on? This can count as one, yeah. But So you you are not buying. If Kelvin Gaslam at welterweight was a stock, you would be sitting over there not buying it. I'm just saying, you know, once bitten, twice shy. You, you miss weight or you show up to... Fight Tyron Woodley looking like you're halfway into a coma already. You need to show us that this whole welterweight dream is attainable for you. And just making weight once and and going out there and winning it is not going to convince me. Well, in fairness, the man has made the welterweight limit three times, right? His first, well, he made uh, Jake Ellenberger, Rick Story, and Brian Melancon were all welterweight fights that where he made the limit. He missed against Nico Misoki and missed against Tyron Woodley. So he's made welterweight more than he's missed it. Hey, how about that? Which is, it's it's kind of like having a batting average, right? If you can bat 300, you're in the Hall of Fame over the course of your career. That's how it works. I'm just saying <laughs> you might be a little bit too skeptical. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. If he does, If he makes weight and does not look like he has killed himself to do it, Two times in a row, then okay, I'll buy it. All right, so we talked you down from three until two. Yeah. There you go. All you right, Ben. still a used car after this? Well, let's do just saying stuff. sitting out in the alley. And then you and I will both collapse from exhaustion of doing this grueling five-round co-main event podcast. Uh, ben, as I was watching UFC 193 on pay-per-view television live from Melbourne, Australia this weekend, uh, I was struck by one thing. And that one thing was 
dear God, did it look fucking miserable to actually be there? Because the UFC did this thing where they wanted to break the attendance record and they put like, what, 13,000 seats on the floor of of the stadium there uh, with those like white plastic lawn chairs that looked like your grandpa wanted to go sit outside when you went to visit him in the retirement home. Yeah. Uh, Those are the chairs you buy when you realize, oh shit, we're having an event and we don't have anywhere near enough chairs. Then I don't know if it was you, but I saw someone commented on Twitter that they would be good for throwing. That was me. When yeah. the, when the and, dro- and people informed me that that had recently happened in Melbourne uh, at a darts championship. At a darts championship. That's Jeez. right. Well, I assume that those were dartists who were sitting in the chairs since would spectators be at the dart darts championship sitting in those chairs? Maybe in Australia. But as you know, we've talked about this on the podcast again and again. Even in a normal-sized arena, floor seats at the UFC is not the greatest thing in the world unless you can get, like, right up front, front row. Because of the cage, because there's people in front of you, because that there is a portly cameraman standing on every single octagon post around the cage. Even under normal circumstances, you're down there on the floor. Uh, you stand the chance of not being able to see at all. I would assume if you are among, you know, your 13,000 closest friends at this stadium event, you could not see jack shit. Which I'm just saying, I don't know that that does a lot to engender loyalty among the fine Australian fans down there. But the upside is you have the comfort and luxury of a white plastic chair to sit in for six hours did you get to take that home with you was that commemorative (laughs) did uh did cody mckenzie come out and scrawl ufc 193 on it and sharpie and you get to take that home or what what's the deal uh if you didn't get to take it home i can point you to where you could get one very similar it's It's not not exactly a bunch of australians trying to get those chairs and their hatchbacks (laughs) it's it's not gonna fit man not exactly limited edition well chad my just saying stuff uh I don't know if you saw in the post-fight Dana White, UFC president, being asked about uh, what he thought of Ronda Rousey's game plan. Uh, Now, you'll note that in the past, Dana White has not had any problem criticizing people's game plans, especially, it would seem, the game plans of fighters from the Jackson Winklejohn camp. He has criticized them on a number of occasions, as well as criticizing their training techniques and uh, criticizing Greg Jackson in the most personal manner. And yet... When asked about the possible criticisms of Ronda Rousey's game plan against Holly Holm, he said it would be stupid to criticize her game plan. Quote, if Ronda went out there and ran after Holm like a maniac and knocked her out, Ronda's the best ever. Ronda's this, that. Ronda goes out and this happens tonight. The game plan was all wrong. This was all wrong. It's easy to sit back and criticize when you're watching the fight, said Dana White. I'm just saying, that sounds like the kind of thing people have said to Dana White on a number of occasions when he has done exactly the thing that he is saying would be stupid to do when it comes in terms of criticism of Ronda Rousey. I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. Asking for a little bit more consistency from the UFC president. Well, that's going to do it for this week's expanded episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens on this Kelvin Gaslam Neil Magny fight card. The intrigue is thick. Will Kevin Gaslam make the limit? Will it satisfy Ben Folks? Who knows? And we'll also look ahead to the other UFC fight night card that is the week after that. Yeah. Will, I- will Kevin Gaslam's name actually be Kelvin? How about that? There's some intrigue for you. Not going to be five rounds next week, by the way. Spoiler alert. Just out of it over here. Delirium. Anyway, that's we're, we're done for this week. We're done. We're through. We're out. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. God, this was a bad idea. No, we should never do this again. This is way too long for us to be together. Yeah. 
trying to make sense talking on the podcast. I feel like barely I'm... hold it together for an hour most of the time. Now we're we're way up. We're probably over an hour and a half. Looking at my phone, there's a bunch of texts from my wife just trying to see if I'm in the hospital or jail. Yeah, no, she thinks you've run out on the family. You probably told her you were going out for smokes. Be right back. Next thing you know, you are sitting front row, Monterey, Ultimate Fighter, Latin America, season 12 finale. E-cigarette hanging out of the corner of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> 